listening to Australia's Tax News Podcast, Tax Talks, the podcast for Australian tax professionals. Welcome to episode 61 of Tax Talks. This is Heide Robson. Property depreciation under Division 40 and 43 can save our clients a lot of money. But the rules around capital allowances and capital work deductions can be very confusing. So I met with Bradley B of BMT to better understand property depreciation. My first question to Brett is how he ended up at BMT. I did a build the building or construction management degree and that you come out of that as a quantity surveyor. You learn about construction management and project management and acquisition of projects in whatever way. And so there's a wide range of things you can kind of do out of that degree. But uh, I ended up with BMT. So Coming out of uni. I wasn't even finished uni. I was still working at – I was at uni. One of, one of the original partners in BMT was, one of, was, was, uh, was Tom. That was Brendan, Matt and Tom. <laughs> Tom was one of my lecturers. <laughs> was it more just a student job to get some experience under your lap? That was my idea at the time, yes. You needed to get some experience to finish. When you finish your degree, you had to do a, a logbook of, uh, I think it's about 16 weeks of experience or something like that. So I thought, oh, well, um, that's an opportunity uh, to do that and the opportunity presented itself. So I thought, oh, well, I'll go and get some work experience. That was in 1998. <laughs> you started at BMT as a logbook project. And then how far into the journey did you realize that BMT is for you? Well, I, I mean, I didn't really ever treat it like a, a, a logbook job. I treated it like a job where I was learning from the, from the, from the start. Um, maybe not the, so much on the first day or two, but, but pretty soon I thought, well, I treat it like I, I actually treat it like a job because it was a paid job. So I need to work properly. Uh, and then I look, I, I liked what I did. I got to learn a lot and, and continued on to where we are today, basically. Uh, it was pretty quick, though. You joined in 1998, 2002, you became a director, 2012, managing director, and then 2015, CEO. What happened to the directors who founded the company? Did you buy them out or are they still shareholders? I brought about three years ago, I uh, brought, so there's two other key uh, executive management that came in as shareholders as part of a transaction that included bringing in some other private money uh, and, and investors and and my uh, internal guys and and bought out the the two, um, there was only, there was Brennan and Tom left then. There was a map, but they bought him out in about 2001, I think it was. Um, and uh, so he, they started it together. He wasn't really there working there, working here much at all. I started just after that. And then look, we just, Those guys are ready to move on and we, we brought some other money and, and bought them out and, and continued along, basically. And that was about three years ago. So BMT is a private company? Uh, yes, private company. Myself, my internal partners, and then just some uh, some, some, some private other investors that have invested into, into BMT. How did the idea for BMT come about? How did Brendan and Tom get together to start BMT? Uh, they, they actually went through uni together in the same degree that I did um, uh, three or four years earlier. Uh, and they worked together through uni. Uh, they then went and got jobs uh, straight out of uni. 
and 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 I think a lot of it, um, you know, they probably, I guess, they may have had some discussions about going and doing some sort of business together, I suppose. But but one of one of them worked at a at a traditional quantity surveying um, business, which is like a a um, you know traditional quantity surveyors do you know a lot of construction cost estimating, which a depreciation guy still does, but. We don't do the, you know, the the things like a bill bill of quantities, which is basically getting a getting a building and counting everything down to every individual brick, piece of steel in the concrete, and all those sorts of things. Um, and the, a, a detailed bill of quantities is something a quantity surveyor will do, and it's a lot of very detailed traditional type estimating. And uh, a lot of companies that do that will probably depreciation schedules are something that's sort of given to the cadet, done on the side a little bit, uh, and and one of those was one of the partners that, that, that thought this is something that probably we can uh, look at doing a little bit differently. Learn that learn that learn the tax uh, rules around this and and combine them with the construction cost knowledge uh, and uh, form BMT. That's how it happened. And Tom was still Tom was still that was Brandon and Tom was still actually lecturing at uh, at university and 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 Brad was going through learning. <laughs> I actually don't know 100% what a quantity surveyor does. Uh, so look, a quantity surveyor is is a, a a building. You know, it's around. It's about quantities of things in buildings. So we're we're a construction cost estimator, and in order to estimate a construction cost, we need to measure how much of everything there is in a building. So yes, off a set of plans. If the plans are detailed enough, we can, you know, take off and measure the number of bricks you would need to buy. Um, we can tell you how many meters of concrete to buy, um, how much carpet to buy, uh, how much plasterboard to buy, how many lights to buy, toilets and all those sorts of things, tiles. So we can measure um, basically all the components of a building uh, and, and and come up with the quantities for those. And then after that, we, we mix that with obviously being able to cost that. So we, how much does it cost to buy all those tiles? How much does it cost to put them there? And really when you look at building all that up together, what – um, from a set of plans, we can give you an idea what it should cost to build a particular building, allowing for everything that you've got to buy, um, everyone that's got to put it there, and 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 a builder's margin and things in between, and any other preliminaries required to make it happen. So uh, you know, off whatever information, being at a set of plans or by actually looking at a building, which is how we do it in depreciation land, we come up, measure how much of something's required, and put a cost on a, on construction of a of a building either. Before it's built, um, while it's being built, or after it's been built, um, any any stage of the process, anything around uh, construction cost, the coins of should be able to give you an idea of what it should cost to do it. Now we don't actually build it; we we can estimate the cost of it uh, whenever it is you would like to build it effectively. So quantity surveyors would mainly be involved with large construction projects. Is that a well, fair comment? Yeah, or? that's a pretty fair comment. And even if you just build a house, you know, you you go you, and you get have a set of plans to build a house. You get a couple of builders to quote the house to build it, and they they would have an estimator of some sort in their organisation and work out how much it's going to cost them to build it. Uh, may not be a, a qualified quantity surveyor, but some sort of building estimator, or it might be a quantity surveyor. Uh, now, uh, th- now you wouldn't come to a you wouldn't come to a company that does quantity surveying to estimate the cost of your house to see how much it would cost to build because you'd have to pay them a certain amount of money and. You know, if three builders quote, you're going to get a quote and know how much it's going to cost them to build it as opposed to doing it the other way. And the builder would work out with their estimators in-house how much timber they've got to buy. And same with the renovation, as you said that. They wouldn't come to me and ask them how much timber to buy because they've got to cost it up 
so they can do it anyway. But on a large project where there might be a developer, builder, or, or a large builder that needs would it might have a coin surveyor in-house or employed externally to, to work out how much whatever they've got to buy and how much it should cost, the bank will often employ a quantity surveyor on a project. If, if the construction cost gets over about a million dollars, most lenders, banks, whatever they are, will require a quantity surveyor on the project to be almost the checker. So rather, you know, developer goes to the bank and says, I want to borrow $10 million and build some, build a particular building. The, the bank just doesn't loan them $10 million and hope they get it built. They, they go and see a quantity surveyor and make sure it can be built for $10 million. And then they don't just give them all the money they release the money to them as they build the project. So the coin surveyor will go out, you know, usually each month and do what's called a progress claim and, uh, you know, tell the bank how much of the money to give them this month and make sure the bank's got enough money to finish the project effectively. So a coin surveyor gets involved in, in through that banking process and could work for the developer or the builder or the bank or, or, or whoever in the process. So that's the traditional area of work for quantity surveyors. So how did Brendan and Tom get the idea to step out of this traditional area and go directly to property investors? Look, it was, it was it's simply one of the services a, a quantity surveyor does do, and it's done within quantity surveying firms. Uh, but an area of a bit of niche expertise where you've got to marry it up with uh, a lot of tax tax knowledge as well at the same time to do it correctly. Like a quantity surveyor comes up with the costs, but someone needs to know the tax rules around those costs to maximise and, and do depreciation properly. Um, so it's a service offered, but they thought, let's look, it's it's one that helps property investors save a bit of, uh, save a fair bit of tax. So that makes it easy because we're, we're positive in the process, I suppose. And so, well, let's, um, let's look at creating this in a little niche market that, look, it was already done by people. Absolutely. There was quantity surveys out there doing depreciation schedules, but we just focused very heavily on it right from near the start. When I, I was the first employee back in 98 under those guys, uh, you know, I was obviously a very small business then. Uh, and, and, uh, we just continually focused on the product and the service. And, uh, you know, but the idea originally is, you know, it wasn't something that didn't exist. It just wasn't done very well. And we went out and, and uh, learned how to do it properly and educated people on the fact they need it. Well, I guess it's, it started by, you know, talking originally to an accountant and saying, look, you know, trust us to do a depreciation schedule. You know, we'll, we learn how to do them properly, build a system to do them with and, and uh, most of our work still now comes referred by accountants. So we kind of take away some of the risk from the accountant because we know about the construction costs and the tax office will accept the construction costs by a quantity surveyor for the purpose of um, depreciation or the purpose of the building or the claims against the building. And so that, that, that means for the accountant it's a little less risky because they don't know how to estimate construction costs. The tax office doesn't accept an estimate for construction costs by an accountant. So we, we, we've got that piece around compliance firstly, taking a bit of risk away, and then, look, learning the rules so we just make it easy. Make it easy by estimating. We actually go and visit the property. Like when an account, when your accountant does your tax return, they don't go out and visit your property. They just get the numbers, right? We provide some of the numbers and make it easy and take a bit of the risk away from the accountants effectively. Does your website play a big role? Website plays a bit of a role, but we have a team of business development um, people that um, will will talk and build relationship with accountants. Um, and we do. And, and the other thing, and, and probably almost the most focus has actually been around education, education of property investors. We've grown our business uh, 
you know, we're a couple of hundred people now and, and, and our business's growth over the years has been around actually educating people about depreciation as opposed to much else. Like, yes, we, have, we obviously we market, we build relationships with people that are potential for referrers, uh, but a, a big piece has always been educating investors uh, that they should crunch numbers on properties before they buy them. And crunching those numbers includes, you know, working out what sort of the numbers, what's it going to cost you to hold this investment property? One of the numbers necessary in there is is a depreciation number, which is the number we provide. And we provide people with estimates of what sort of deductions might be available for properties they're looking at, all that sort of stuff. And uh, um, so between education uh, and and the marketing, et cetera, and the, and the relationships we build amongst those people is how we've sort of got to where we are today. But in most cases, the uh, depreciation schedules would be requested after the property has been bought, isn't it? Ah, uh, yeah. Look, we don't we, we we put a lot of work into building tools to give people an estimate of how much they might get if they buy a particular property. But they can get that from us for free. Uh, you know, we've got an app that they can use and things like that. That that uh, or on our website they can work out some approximate numbers to help them. But then uh, people take, um, uh, you know, some people buy it straight away. Some people buy it the next time they do a tax return, a depreciation schedule. And we, I, the median time is about 10 months after settlement that we do a depreciation schedule for, um, uh, for, a, for a client in the, across the business. There are two different words floating around in my head. And one is property depreciation and then one is property allowances and deductions. I'm guessing that they are the same thing, that just property depreciation is, a, is an accounting concept and capital allowances and property deductions is a tax concept. Am I on the right track there or have I completely Look, missed it? <laughs> Look, you're on the right track. And I, and I think there's a, a few different terms that sort of float around, um, fixtures and fittings, capital allowances, um, capital works. Uh, I mean, the, the, the different... You know, Division 10D, Division 40, Division 43, and and look, I, there's different terms relate to different things in relation to the claims that get made. They're all claims um, because, you know, decline in value is another one. Uh, they're all claims that are made against a particular property. Um, and, and look, the two real, really relevant terms are around the, the Division 40 and the Division 43, um, you know, under the Income Tax Assessment Act. You know, Division 40 relates to you know, furniture furniture and fittings or plant and equipment items, which is things like, you know, carpets, hot water services, stoves, blinds, curtains. And the word depreciation is often used or is used really for those things. And the other claims relate to the Division 43, which is also, uh, which is really the structural components of a building more so. Um, things like the, the bricks, the concrete floors, the walls and the roof or the, the external external and internal, you know, the hard stuff, I suppose you'd say, the structure, and that has some different rules that relate to that. Uh, the, that Division 43 or the building allowance, it relates to the actual cost of construction at the time of construction, and it runs over uh, for 40, a 40-year 40 claim where all of the other plant equipment items or furniture and fittings, um, the tax office puts a life on them and how long they expect them to last, and, and, and rather than being sort of 40 years, it might be 12 years or 10 years and you kind of claim the depreciation uh, over that period of time under a couple of different methods. Hmm. Uh, but they, there's lots of different terms that float around. But uh, look, it, it's, it's fairly simply those two main components that are that are relevant. Yeah, so it's capital allowances in Division 40 for furniture and fittings and then capital works 
for building structures in Division 43. Is there an easy way to remember that capital allowance is for furniture and fittings and capital works is for building structures? Because I keep confusing the two and I keep forgetting which one is which. We probably just try to call them uh, plant equipment or furniture and fittings and 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 building structures. <laughs> um, and go you know, with Division 40 and Division 43 to, to unconfuse us with those words, basically. So basically just stay away from the words capital allowance and capital works because it's yeah, just because so they get a bit confusing. Dry in, in yeah. Because they are almost the same. Like the tax office, a lot of the, you know, the, it does, um, they, 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 they obviously confuse it. Like Division 43 used to be called Division 10D. It's just a new word name for it when they bring out, it's, it's the same thing, exactly the same thing. That is now Division 43. Yes, and as they change legislation, they make up another new fancy term, right? Division 40 and 43. I find Division 43 much easier because it's only about property. It's only about buildings, whereas in Division 40, you have everything else in there as well. But 43 is just about buildings, and it's basically if the building has been built after 92, it's just a straight 2.5% and that's it. Is in reality Division 43 also much easier to work out than the furniture and fittings in your in your work? If you if you look at our construction costing and, and uh, tax knowledge perspective, if you look at those two sciences, um, as far as working out the amount of claims, the Division 43 is much simpler because we... Um, it is all lumped together, you would say, the total construction cost of these things. And it, providing it's built after, um, it's actually 1987 um, is the rule. Uh, and, oh, really? Um, Sorry. It, yes, but which, which is fine. But then 1992 is also a relevant date because some other structural improvements, not the original building, uh, driveways and things like that, um, relate to a date in 1992 as opposed to 1987. But once you've actually established a cost base or or not a cost base, establish a cost for this particular component, the Division 43 component, it is, yes, that 2.5% claim each year, which runs for 40 years. I mean, to put that simply, if you buy a, built a new house now and it costs cost, cost $400,000 in structural pieces, you get 2,500, sorry, 2.5% of that as a deduction each year or $10,000 per year, and you make that claim for 40 years. Mm. If you had to build the same thing 20 years ago, just means you've only got 20 years of it left. So the, the workings on, of that are, are actually quite simple from a um, tax perspective, but it's actually more difficult than the other from a construction costing perspective because putting a uh, construction cost on a whole house is the expertise that a coin surveyor has, which is we can count all the bricks for you and work out all the concrete amount and things like that. It's more difficult to come up with a construction cost for that than than it is to put a value on a on a stove because you know a stove you can go to Harvey Norman and see what a stove costs right it's not yes. there's not as much science involved in the construction uh, estimating or the or the estimating of a of a stove however the the plant and equipment rules have a lot more uh, differences because the tax office puts out and says that a whole bunch of different plant equipment items or Division 40 items last a different amount of time. So you have to apply a different kind of um, way of working it out to each of these items as opposed to the building, you lump it all together and apply a percentage effectively. When I buy a house, is everything either furniture and fittings or 
structure? So is everything either division 40 or 43 or are there also items that are neither? Yes, well, there's there's items that are neither and there's value in there that's neither. When you buy a, a property or a house, a unit, whatever it is, you buy, you know, some bricks, some concrete or timber, depending on what it's made of. Uh, it might be uh, whatever and, and a roof and a stove, but you also buy a piece of land uh, and the land's not a depreciable, com- depreciable component. Oh, yes, uh, of course. Yeah, and some things like um, soft uh, soft soft landscaping uh, and, you know, tr- the the, um, the trees and the plants and the things are non-depreciable. Uh, and you also, you know, when you buy a property, there's a, there's a, I, um, uh, often, a, I guess, a developer's profit component, and that's not a depreciable component either. The depreciation actually relates to the actual construction cost and, and, and the value of the plant and equipment items, which are kind of part of the construction cost, I suppose you would say. When you buy a house, you don't go down and buy a stove. It's already in there. It's part of the purchase price. But the purchase price is made up of all those components, um, mm. Division 40 components, Division 43 components, non-depreciable components such as soft landscaping, uh, land, profit, and uh, and other things. The, only the Division 40 and Division 43 are depreciable. So, you know, if you pay a million dollars for a property, there may only be $500,000 worth of things that you can claim as a deduction. Um, on, on, the, on, the, on the flip side, if you've got a really good um, discount on a property in some way, well, rather than a discount, you do get a situation sometimes where, you know, maybe developers have gone bust or someone spent a lot of money and it's not worth as much as they've spent in construction. Your depreciation can actually be more than the total purchase price. And that doesn't happen so often, but I, you do see those scenarios. If someone really overcapitalizes when they build uh, something uh, and the market really doesn't do well from a selling perspective, um, it ought, the value of the property isn't what you depreciate based on. It actually comes back to the construction costs and the items that are there. Let's say the um, construction cost is $1 million, but the developer went bust and you got it for 700000 you can't then claim a depreciation of one million over the next forty years, can you? Yes, you actually can. Oh, really? Uh, because that one million dollars was spent on construction, as long as it's only the qualifying things that get claimed. And and look, you know, we've done a fair bit of uh, appreciation work on 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 the block, for example, the block um, TV show, the apartments that they they build or renovate there. They often spend a lot more. Not always, but often they've spent more on the construction of those because they do so much structural work to these buildings than what the end purchase price actually becomes. And then you can claim a deduction for more than you paid. For more than you paid, but then on the flip side, you don't claim a deduction based on what you pay. You claim a deduction based on the construction cost. The actual, uh, est- actual or estimated construction cost is the important number, not your purchase price. <laughs> If you paid seven hundred thousand dollars for a property, and and a builder built it before for a million dollars, you you know you you've got a million dollars worth of claims there over the next forty years. Oh really? Uh, oh. If, if it's all qualifying and stuff. I learned something. I I didn't think that was possible, but. Look, it doesn't happen all that often because generally, uh, you know, 
developers like to make sure they don't spend a million dollars and sell it for seven hundred thousand dollars yeah they're not long in business Uh, if they do that yeah but there is definitely scenarios where that does happen we've done depreciation schedules that way absolutely just to hone in on the fact that it's the actual construction cost just going through a few numbers again let's say i pay two million for a house one million is for the land and the soft landscaping and then one million is for the actual house. The builder only spent five hundred thousand to build that house. Then I would only be able to depreciate five hundred thousand via division fourteen forty three, not the full one million I paid. But I can only depreciate what the builder incurred in cost, not what I incurred in cost. Yes, your uh, and and it's very close to that. There's a couple of. Uh... Um, the, the methodology, the way things are done, that it's not quite as perfectly cut and dry in that, but we'll say yes. It's so close to yes that yes is the answer to that. The fact that um, the, the, the total depreciation claimed is very close to the total of what the builder actually spends, and in that scenario it's about five hundred, so it's going to be about 500000 And now let's say it's an old house and somebody else has already been depreciating it, then I assume I can't depreciate the whole lot. I can only depreciate what's the left of the original cost. Is that right? That's correct. Now, um, the federal budget changes in last year have made a bit of a mess up to this answer because it's a different answer before and after. But um, in effect, the uh, the building allowance component is unaffected by the budget changes. And um, if you buy a house that's 10 years old, Good, is it, I mean, an easy example is let's use an example. I mean, if you buy a house that's 10 years old um, and it's got 40 years of claims in this Division 43, the first 10 years that you didn't own it, you don't get to claim it. You've basically just got the, the, the rest of the 30 years left. So, you know, this claim is the same amount each year based on the construction cost at the time of construction. Uh, so it's one um, number that carries on the way through and it just means that you don't get the first 10 years but you get the, the, the remaining 30 years. The same as if you buy a property 10 years ago, uh, new and uh, lived in it for 10 years. Um, that it, I mean, it's still depreciating, but you were using it for your principal place of residence, so you can't claim it. But if you decide to move out of that, then the Division 43 claims for the next 30 years, if you still own it and rent it out for another 30 years, uh, you can claim um, uh, the same either way. With the plant equipment, it's... This Division 40, it used to be like this, but now it yeah, no longer is. Some, somewhat like that. It's not quite as... Um, and, and this was part of the problem and why they made some of the changes is that the uh, the methodology or, or the legislation really had a gap in the way that the secondhand value is calculated. Uh, and um, the Division 43 component is quite easy. If it's, you know, it's got a 40-year life, it's 10 years old, you've got 30 left. With a secondhand stove, well, the people would say that it's, it was a little difficult to identify how old it is. Is it three years old or five years old? It's not actually as difficult as people think, but um, with some things it is a little difficult. It's hard to uh, ascertain exactly the age of carpet, for example, um, without some other prior knowledge. So there's a gap in the way that that was um, valued uh, from in transfer of ownership between a vendor and a purchaser. So an investor buys a property. We would put like a market value on these things, a secondhand market value under the appropriate methodology, but the methodology was um, or the legislation was flawed uh, in the way it uh, calculated that. But effectively what should happen is um, plant equipment gets one total life and if it's, you know, if it's a few years old, it needs to get a lower value because it's secondhand. And that works normally in depreciation world. If you think uh, of a car, when you buy it new, you drive it out of the shop, 
um, it depreciates in value. And if you're the first owner and you use it for business, well, half or whatever it is, um, and then if you buy that car three years later, it, you buy it for a lesser value and then you depreciate based on a lesser value. But with property, the, 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 I mean, the good thing is that the values generally go up but you, the value of your carpet and stove didn't really go up, did it? I mean, it's secondhand carpet and stove now, and uh, that's the mismatch between what other things outside of property often the plant and equipment is, and that's why these changes have come into place. But So prior to the budget, it kind of worked like that with a few you know, um, differences around what we discussed there. Past the budget, um, they've knocked out and said if it's secondhand, no claim at all, but we might get into the budget in a moment, I think. <laughs> when did you first hear about these changes? Were you shocked or did you think it makes sense there was a flaw before? Uh, it makes sense. Um, now, the tax office was very uh, was not very good at marrying the two people together and never has, never seemed to be able to. I'd had different discussions with uh, people at the tax office over time about this problem. Uh, and, uh, but when did I, I mean, I've, so I've known it's a problem and look, we, we always put a secondhand market value that's lower than the original value on these items. We run under a methodology. Uh, but if you, the gray areas in the legislation meant that people, there was an opportunity for people to depreciate something that's already been depreciated. Uh, and, and that's what probably, um, I, I agree needed some tweaking, uh, and, uh, but, As far as the actual changes, um, uh, I was actually sitting at a dinner at budget night <laughs> uh, last year uh, in Parliament House and uh, pretty much um, as they got up to explain some of the changes to property uh, around affordability measures, including the travel claims, and then um, Scott Morrison starts talking about depreciation and I started choking on my steak thinking, hang on, what's going on here? Didn't know any – and there was no prior consultation with industry. Um, or, or anything along those lines. It was just, let's make a change. People don't understand it very well, and maybe it'll stick. Um, and it did. Um, so uh, uh, that's that's how we that's how we end up. So there was not a lot of uh, not a lot of um, not a lot of uh, pre warning. And I had been in Canberra a fair bit in the past because I knew that you know affordability, negative gearing, things are on the agenda. So I've been talking to a lot of politicians in the year or so prior about you know look, we do depreciation schedules. We probably do half of the market of them in the country. And uh, so we've got a fair bit of data that can help in let's get it right. I'm all for good legislation. And if it changes into sensible legislation, I'm, I'm industry and I'll help. But, uh, um, you know, we're still quite a shock. Did you realize straight away that it wouldn't affect you as much as I, for example, first thought? Or was your first thought a moment of panic where you thought, oh, God, Our, our business model is going out of the window. Uh, look, the, I, I, you, you could make, it was fairly um, plain straight away that Division 43 is not affected. Now, about... And that's where most of the yeah, depreciation comes from 85 anyway. 85-odd percent of the deductions out of a property come out of that Division 43. Now, um, as far as the plant equipment changes are concerned, look, there was, you know, a three-line paragraph. <laughs> they, they didn't give us much information to go off um, at the time. And then... We're kind of in a bit of limbo of draft legislation backwards and forwards. I consulted with Treasury. Uh, you know, we had Treasury on a hookup two days later to discuss this and and uh, and and look uh, uh, different meetings with them over time and proposals back to uh, uh, different politicians that were involved in drafting this legislation from industry. Uh, spent a lot of time in Canberra in that uh, six months. <laughs> um, 
And I, I think the 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 initial thoughts on the effect of the business are well, like, oh, it's not it's not great changing what we're doing. There was a lack of um, speed in the application of getting it through Parliament. A lack of knowledge by the the people involved in it uh, would be my would be my opinion. Having to sort of educate people within the the, the government about do you realise what this change is? And yes, there's a gap in this legislation. Let's help you fix it and put proposals to them on on simplistic ways to make that happen. But uh, look, you know, it was a it was a bit concerning straight away. But you know, that's it's not um, it's far from the end of the world. The thing is, at the moment, that people think that it's changed and maybe it's not worth it, and they just don't know. Uh, and and so we're talking to a lot of people every day that that are uh, saying, look, well, hasn't that changed? Is there still depreciation? We're like, yeah, you still got the whole building allowance thing. And they go, oh, okay, well, let's go ahead and get it sorted out. Um, that even the accounting industry, um, I'm quite surprised. But you know, there's a lot of things changing the budget, and they don't necessarily get their head around every little piece of it regarded to, regarded to, to property. And I guess they rely on us as the experts in depreciation land and properties anyway. So. Um, a lot of discussions with accountants about the change over time. Brad, can you actually quickly explain what changed with respect to Division yeah, 40? Yeah, sure. Um, what really, I mean, simply that we've been talking about plant equipment and if you are now to buy, buy a second-hand residential property, uh, you know that second-hand plant and equipment uh, is no longer able to claim depreciation at all. So regardless of whether the stove is one-year-old or 10 years old, if you buy this property and it's not brand new, then then you don't get to claim any depreciation on that stove. Unless you buy a so new stove. So if you buy a new stove yourself, absolutely, it work, works exactly the same way. So it's about really you actually incurring the cost of the asset. Uh, and um, if you if you if anything you add to the property, you still get the claim depreciation on. Um, anything that relates to that Division 43 claim and allowances after the dates, you still get to claim. But anything secondhand from a plant and equipment perspective in a, in a residential property has been, been knocked out and there's no claims against it. And it only relates to properties that were bought on or after budget night. So anything that was bought before budget night still follows the old yes, rules. Yes, um, grandfathered. Um, you know, anyone, you know, and then it was 7.30 on the 9th of May as I was choking on my steak. Uh, that, um, <laughs> that um, And I have actually had the situation where I've had client that's a client that uh, signed their contract that afternoon um, handed it over to the the other side who signed it the next morning um, because the contract didn't exchange until the the 10th of May. Um, they, they 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 didn't get any claim for depreciation on their plant equipment. Yes, uh, even though they they signed their contract before uh, in, in a New South Wales or Victorian, I think it was property. But look, uh, anyone who bought before that um, is under the same rules as the past. It's only someone who exchanged a contract uh, after that time. Uh, that is affected by the budget change. Um, and look, there's a, there's a, there's obviously all a few things which are, are not affected by the budget change, new properties and, and things like that. But but yeah, the ones that affected are, are those after. One one that's probably slightly different to that is uh, when when a, a, a someone lived in a property before the budget uh, and they already owned it, and then they decided to move out and turn it into an investment property after that time on budget night. Then they actually become a budget affected uh, property where they won't to get cl- to claim against their plant and equipment either. Um, that's the one. That's one thing in there that I don't really think is is uh, um, correct. Really, the right thing to do because uh, these people. You know, There's nothing yeah, they not could really, have done. Not really, truly grandfathered because they bought this property before that budget change, and they may have already had an intention to move out of that 
after living in it for a period of time and making the investment properly. And they've been, I think, adversely, adversely affected wrongly by this change. Brand new properties are not affected at all. It's only second-hand properties and then only furniture and fittings or plant and equipment, Division 40, but not Division 43. Yes, uh, correct. And I guess probably the, the question there is what's not affected and, and you've got a, a chunk of the list there. Uh, um, if a developer um, builds a property and and then decides to sell it and it takes them uh, up to, say, um, six months, sorry, up to six months to sell it. And they, well, so if they rent a property out to up for up to six months, then the new purchaser is still able to buy that property as a new property for the purpose Brand of new. depreciation. And, and that's providing the, the developer didn't claim any depreciation. It's just been held as trading stock. Then that's, uh, that's, that's a situation where the new person won't be affected. If you buy a property from someone, and there's been a substantial renovation done prior to the sale. So you, it, I mean, in that situation, it's like you're buying it from, it may not be an actual developer, but someone who's developed it. And develop could mean a substantial renovation. Now, a new kitchen and bathroom and a coat of paint isn't seen by this as a substantial renovation. There actually needs to be a substantial renovation, changes to walls, changes to a bunch of things in the property. So the criteria around that. If, you're a, uh, if you buy a, a non-residential or a, as in a commercial property, of any type, then there's no effect to you. Oh, really? Okay. So commercial properties are completely unaffected completely by these changes. Completely unaffected. Properties owned in a company are unaffected, not a company in trust structure, but directly in a company are not affected. Properties owned by a super fund, not affected, but a self-managed super fund, they are affected. So there's a few situations where they're not affected, but most normal, when I say normal, <laughs> most uh Property investors like like myself, like mum and dad, property investors, etc. Most of the people that invest in residential property would do it in their own name or through some sort of company trust structure. A lot of the time, which so most of most um, secondhand residential buyers are affected. But yeah, look, yeah, the commercial is completely left out. Look, if they touch commercial, there they're really got to look at commercials affecting businesses. And then there's a lot of plant and equipment in the business that's not attached to the all fit outs in shops and things like that. And it opens up a fair bit of other things that potentially could be affected if they try to run that across the board. So it is a, another one of those things, a bit of a mismatch uh, and attacking the residential property investor a little bit. Property in a, in a company is not affected. And also, I think you said a property in a trust is not affected. Is that right? Or did I misunderstand you? In a company is not affected, but it must be under a, you know, a, a company type owned directly by a company, which is not normally the way people buy properties. Normally they have a company and trust structure. And then, uh, so a company and trust, because it's, because it's not a, then, then a really a corporate tax entity, it's a company and trust as a structure to buy a, a property. And then normally the income flows from the trust and back up at the, the end user, at the, uh, at the individual, the, the beneficiary, yes. Uh, and therefore, if you buy through that type of structure, then you are budget affected. If the corporate trustee owns the property, then it is affected by the changes. But if a pure company owns it without a corporate trustee relationship, then it isn't affected. Yeah, so corporate tax entity is the words that I've got. But yeah, um, and that, but that's a, that, uh, remember, I'm the quantity surveyor, not the accountant here. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. commercial property valuations or more residential property valuations? Uh, we do more residential ones, actually, um, but 
not in it's not that we don't do commercial ones, and we do quite a number of commercial ones. About fifteen uh, percent of our of our of our work, but you know, we did seventy thousand of them last year, so fifteen percent is still a fairly large number. <laughs> we've we've focused hard on the on the on the on awareness and education in the space of residential, uh, and and look, grown that over time, and commercials grown alongside that. There's a lot more residential investment properties out there than there is commercial ones, <laughs> right? So uh, a lot more opportunity in those. But yeah, we did both. How many variations do you do per year? So 15% is 70,000. Look, we, we did about 70,000 in total last financial year, um, depreciation schedules. So you, you didn't do 70,000 commercial valuations. No. The total number of variations you do is 70,000. About 70,000 70, last year, yes. Okay, good. Okay, I thought the 15% was 70,000. No, 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 I no, thought, no, wow. no. About 70,000 in total. <laughs> makes sense. Effective lives. Do you usually follow the... Uh, Commissioner's effective life rates in TR 2017-2 or do you usually self-assess the effective lives? We uh, we would normally. So the tax office, as you've put there, um, puts out these effective lives on items and we would we would, uh, we would generally stick to those effective lives. As far as the debate as to whether or not you can argue that in your specific situation the effective life should be less, um, should you have enough of those arguments or debates with the tax office, if it's worth it, then uh, obviously we can easily change those. Um, but then the account will normally get involved in that 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 process, uh, and and we'll put them on there with probably disclaimer because we're not the guy arguing the life of the item, we're the guy that comes in really to put the cost on it. So we normally play with what ones the tax office put out, unless there's a, a good enough reason otherwise. You basically start a draft depreciation schedule with the effective lives set by the yes. commissioner. And then if the accountant or the client comes back and says, yes, but the stove should be this or that, then you adjust the depreciation schedule because in the end, the onus is on the client to to justify the shorter uh, yes. effective we don't, life. We don't get involved in the justification. Do you get at all involved upon the sale of an asset with respect to the um, balancing adjustment at the end, or that that's just for the accountant to to work out? We we don't usually get involved, uh, and and the thing is, if we've got involved anywhere through the process with this person who has this investment property, and it, the numbers generally that are needed for that purpose, um, any that we could do are already there. I suppose you'd say, other than proratering the last year or something like that. But yeah, we don't uh, um, don't get involved in the in the process that often at that point because we're you know purely because they're there already. Yes, exactly. You already have given them everything they need. You know this rule around immediate deduction for capital assets costing less, yes. costing less than three hundred dollars. Does that come up in your depreciation schedule? Yes, we apply those rules absolutely way? when we do a depreciation schedule. We're there to try and maximize those deductions. So if uh, if they're able to make those claims at one hundred percent for those items worth less than three hundred dollars, uh, yeah, we'll apply that definitely in the schedules. Unless the client doesn't wish to for some reason, if they want to spread their tax out, then we can revert back to the effective life instead. A low value pool for items that cost less than thousand dollars. Does this low value pool come up Absolutely. at all in your depreciation schedule? Absolutely, we apply a low schedules? cost and a low value pool. So, if an item's are purchased uh, for a value of less than a thousand dollars, then uh, we we drop it into the low value pool and uh, it gets claimed at 
um, 18 and three quarter percent in the first financial year, regardless of how long in the year you own the asset. Uh, so there's no pro rata adjustment in that first year. And then it reverts to a 37.5% um, claim in, in diminishing value uh, in, in, the, in the following years. So we, we, we apply that um, to the item at the start. But also if, if, an, if an item's uh, acquired at a cost of more than $1,000, once it becomes um, depreciated down in a financial year to a value of less than $1,000, which is where the then it gets dropped into that low value pool. pool. And once again, we apply that uh, when we prepare the schedule. But if someone doesn't want to claim that, um, you can easily just turn it off and, and, and revert back to the effective life. From memory, I, I've seen some of your depreciation schedules, and I think from memory you actually list the depreciation yes. for every year. So you say in 2017 this number, in 2018 this number, and yeah, you know, it goes to a long for 40 time years. But we, we project the numbers each year, and there's actually a separate schedule with all the pooled items, so you can sort of see when it drops in in that year and it drops out of that one. But it's all totaled up at the end. Uh, and very easy to adjust either way, but yeah, it's all, yeah. all all is in there for life, <laughs> life of the property, and that's it. One needs to engage you once, and then has all the depreciation yes. for the next forty years, unless well, yeah, of course one, one buys a new, a new stove. stove. And, and look, we've built uh, uh, in the last uh, year or so uh, an online portal where your, your depreciation schedule actually um, you can connect. You know, you log in and you can see your depreciation schedule, which um, allows. Um, allows a live depreciation schedule, as we kind of call it. Um, so if you actually buy a stove within the platform MyBMT, you can actually enter your new stove and you, you and edit. your accountant can get the new numbers with the new stove being entered. And we built that so that, um, well, a few things. One was about a live depreciation schedule so people can easily update them. Uh, and second, if they want to, or they can just send us the cost of stove and we can update it like we did before. But it also allows the the, the owner to share that, depreciation schedule with their accountant uh, at the time uh, and if the accountant has, you know, 50 different clients with depreciation schedules from BMT, the accountant has one login and can see them all and never has to go looking for a PDF file or anything ever again. And if the clients do update these on the way through, then uh, uh, they can – they can they can they can have the new numbers and and I, and in there you can tailor a few things about whether you want the pulling on or off and just look at the year that you want to look at and the type of things that you want to see. Also allows the uh, the client um, to see it gives them some visibility to our process. Uh, you know, once you've ordered the schedule uh, depreciation schedule, we um, will give you login access if you wish to have it, and you can kind of see what process it's at progress it's at if you want to. Now we 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 send you emails and SMSs and tell you what we doing but if you want to log on at midnight and see whether we've been to site or not you can effectively and all of your depreciation schedules can stay within that platform into the future and uh, a later update as time goes on have you thought about integrating with uh, some of the cloud softwares yes we, we have we actually definitely have the ability to to do that from our end but um and we have done it with a couple and we've got zero working on it i think uh at their end but um they have software development time needed to make that happen uh, and our end can do it but uh, they've got to build their end to do it because really that information should transfer easily we have we have done it with a couple of them um, with uh, handysoft um, handysoft you get in a file format that just directly downloads into the software uh, and with a couple of the clients that use their own software packages we've we've uh, got api or, or direct um, access to drop our numbers straight into their their their, their systems. Um, and so we can do it from our end, but some of the larger software companies have got a lot of software things they're doing and, 
and you got to uh, let them let them build their end of it as well. But there, there's there's some some inroads happening. We got moved down the line recently by because one of I those. Because I think that would be terrific. That, that should have been done by now. Yeah, software always takes a long, long time to work. I can imagine the instant write-off of assets costing less than twenty thousand doesn't feature as much in your depreciation schedules because that only applies to businesses. It's it's not something that features in a lot of, you know, one-off residential properties, obviously, but but we definitely do it on some of the commercial spaces owned by businesses or and uh so have the facility to do that. There's a in, in the non-residential space the, there's there's things like small other small business tax concessions that change the amount that, uh, and the value of items that you can drop in the low value pool or write off at 100% in the first year and also on different like farms had a lot of specific plant equipment that can be written off at um, uh, at different rates under different rules as they try to stimulate that industry um, fencing and fodder and things of things that come to mind and and water tanks over the last uh a uh, few years, um, and there've been a lot of changes in that legislation. But whatever, whatever um, legislation is in place in relation to that particular property, we will prepare it accordingly. And and whether it's to be written off in one year, ten years, twenty years, uh, our, 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 our schedules are prepared as per making the ability to do that. Um, we we ask as many questions to the client to make sure we treat them as the right taxpayer um, uh, in preparing that depreciation schedule. But if the accountant then comes to us and says, "Look, they're actually a, one of these, and they can claim this twenty thousand, it's easy for us to change those numbers very um, after the fact. Division three to eight farm depreciation, etc. Your software uh, doesn't better deny um, it. It comes down to making sure the right people with the right expertise enter the right numbers in the right spots. The the, the system that we do our depreciation schedules on is built by us to do depreciation schedules. So we need to have the flexibility to make sure we do the right thing, right? Um, any of those. And look, I had to rebuild uh, rebuild our report. When I say I, my IT team had to rebuild our, our reports last year after that budget legislation change. But uh, we had it out. We, we knew what it was going to look like and built it between when they announced it and when the when the when the when the legislation got put in place and released it very soon, a few days after that, um, ready to go. So uh, we we depending on when you bought now um, in residential, you may get a slightly different looking report. The the core the core fact is the same. We do a depreciation schedule for you, but it may look a bit different after budget than before. That's all. Um, so use the numbers from the right place they need to. There's one thing we haven't touched yet on about Division Forty, and that is the difference between diminishing and prime cost method which one do you usually um, actually in your depreciation schedules i now remember yes. you actually list both and then the uh, client can decide which one look yes we, yes we list both so you know depending on what type of taxpayer you are that might change which one you choose that's why we give you both now i mean the, the differences are simple and we might start with the prime cost because it's the simple one to understand and, it, and it, it's simply the under the prime cost method the deduction is the same every year over an effective life so so it's like a straight line. It's a straight line method. And and I, I think the simplest way to explain it is to probably use an example. And one that's really easy is carpet because a carpet has a 10-year effective life. If you've got $10,000 worth of carpet uh, as a value at the time, the tax office tells you that carpet in a residential property should last 10 years. You get 10% of that each year over 10 years. $1,000 per year until it runs out. Well, until it gets down to $1,000 and drops into the low-value pool, of course. But uh, effectively, the prime cost method is a straight-line method of claiming the total cost of the um, asset over its effective life at the same amount each year. 
the Division 43 in a building is calculated that way. It's 2.5% of the total cost each year from when it starts to when it runs out in 40 years um, as its life. Now, the prime cost oh, – sorry, the diminishing value is 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 a, is a um, depreciation rate that is twice uh, the um, prime cost depreciation rate. So um, now in saying that, that's about 10 years. I think it's 2006 – before that, it was a different rate, but let's let's talk with the last ten years. So, and what that's it's twice as much. So, what it means is that you would depreciate the carpet at twenty percent in the first year, uh, and diminishing value method is you claim based on that diminishing value each year. So, in the first year, that carpet would get twenty percent of ten thousand dollars or two hundred dollars as a claim, and in the second year, it gets twenty percent of the residual value of the carpet. So, it actually gets twenty percent of $8,000, which is the $10,000 original value less the $2,000 claim in the first year, and 20% of $8,000 is is uh, $1,600. And then once it's below $1,000, it goes into the low-value pool. That is correct, yes. If because you, otherwise if you, want you it would to. be... Yeah, otherwise, well, otherwise it, uh, no, so it doesn't finish. go for five years. It just keeps getting 20% of whatever's ever left, whatever is left each year, effectively. Now, um, so the diminishing value gets a bit more deduction in the early years. Uh, but obviously pans out to a lesser deduction in the later years uh, um, or drops into the low-value uh, depreciation uh, or drops in the low-value pool in the later years. So, you know, yeah. that's so a, most that's, people that's would use the diminishing value, wouldn't they? Most people would use diminishing value. The only reason you wouldn't is if you know that you're going to have, uh, you know, a higher tax bracket in two years' time than you do now and you don't get to take as good an advantage of the of the deductions. Um, so, But most of the time a normal residential investor would run with prime cost, diminishing value, sorry, because you get more deductions in those early years. Changes to capital gains tax. Are there any with the latest budget changes or was it just pure depreciation? Uh, pure depreciation. There's no actual changes to the legislation. Look, in reference to the to capital gains tax and uh, and the federal budget, the the changes um, that were made in the federal budget were not changes to the capital gains tax legislation, but the way this plant and equipment is treated at the point of sale of a property is slightly different to, to, because of the fact that you're no longer actually claiming a deduction on these, these plant and equipment items. Uh, in most um, situations that will sort of cancel each other out in the calculation of a capital gains tax um, a calculation on sale of that property, um, but we actually put these numbers into a uh, depreciation schedule as an appendix on, on the opening value uh, because we subtracted out of the total cost for the purpose of um, um, calculating Division 43, because if you do happen to live in the property some of the time as your principal place of residence or you, you throw away some of the items in there or you sell it and settle it in a different financial year to when you sold, you know, exchange for sale and otherwise, you may need some of these numbers. So we put them all there uh, and it may in some instances change the capital gains tax calculations at the time of sale. It's no change to the capital gains tax rules. It's just changed to the to the the, the things that happen in that calculation based on the plant equipment uh, depreciation changes that happened at this federal budget. But the numbers are there, so the accountant, who's a specialist in that area, can work out uh, your capital gains tax liabilities at the time of selling that property. 
by what percentage do you think the average claim is going down due to the changes? It probably would be quite a small percentage, like 5% or so? Well, it's... Or 10%? It's, you know, the simple uh, um, answer of over the life of the property, about 85% of the deduction is made up of the Division 43. So most of the deduction is still there. So I guess it's gone down in the whole life of the property by about 15%, but it actually affects it a little more in the early stages of ownership. And, uh, look, you know, simple example... Uh, and, and look, why it affects it more is because that plant and equipment you, gets fairly high deductions in the early years because of that diminishing value and short short life and short life. So you get to claim it fairly quickly. But you know something that's you know a brand new unit bought for about seven hundred thousand um, dollars in the first year probably gets about fourteen thousand dollars as a deduction. The first five years, you know, close to sixty thousand dollars as opposed to something now after the budget that was two years old purchased for the same $700,000. The first year dropped down to probably a bit over $8,000 and the first five years to about $41,000. So mm. there's a, you know, there's a bit of difference in the first year not and a bit in the first five years, but then after that it would be pretty similar. You know, year six would be a bit more for the, for the new one. Uh, but it drops off and then uh, we'll come back to being that uh, Division 43 claim for the rest of the life of the property. So a bit of effect at the start. But, look, you know, you can't get 14000 You can get 8000 out of the 2000 out of the out of the, the, the two-year-old one. It's still 8000 so you still go and do it, right? In, in the end, uh, appreciation's got some complex things around it. And, yes, we've had some changes you know, after basically 20 years in doing this, some of the biggest things I've seen is that that really the, the end user or the client doesn't understand it very well. The person that buys an investment property, I think, really should be crunching some of these numbers and, and seeing what a property is going to cost them in cash flow before they buy that so they can assess whether they can afford it and look at what their future looks like. We've provided a lot of numbers in this depreciation space, a lot of education. And one good thing after that 20 years is that there's a lot more people coming to us and saying, I need a depreciation schedule than I need one of your thingies, my accountant said so. Welcome back. I find it interesting that on average, 85% of a property's depreciation comes out of Division 43 and not Division 40. In the next episode, episode 62, Christine Ecop and Georgina Siradis of Johnson Winters Lettery, JWS, will talk about electronic signatures. Until then, thank you for listening. Bye for now and see you in the next episode. <laughs>